of independent thought my name is desmond price no matter where you are in the world i want to thank you for giving me a few minutes of your day to hear my thoughts as always we have a great show for you today now here are our topics hello everyone welcome back to another episode of independent thought my name is desmond price for all of the returning listeners Thank you so much for coming back after that break. I know it's been a few weeks since I put out an episode. Thank you so much for checking back in with me and the podcast. If this is your first time, welcome. And just to kind of give you a little preview of how things go here on my podcast, this episode is broken into two parts. This first subject here will be different than my second subject, which will be with a guest. And my guest and I will have a conversation that's completely unrelated to this one, which I will touch on a little bit later once we finish this subject. But first things first, we are here today to start talking about the Boy Scouts of America and what is the largest child sex abuse case in U.S. history. And when I first came across this story, it was July 1st or 2nd. Uh, just a few weeks ago. I was on Twitter, in the news section of Twitter, and buried towards the bottom of the news section was one article from Bloomberg that said, the Boy Scouts of America have reached a settlement with sex abuse survivors. And underneath that title, it said that this is the largest child sex abuse case in U.S. history. And my mind immediately went to, wait, what did you say? You, you said what? The largest child sex abuse case in U.S. history? How is that possible? How is it possible that this is happening and that no one's covering it? I thought I was losing my mind. And for those of you who follow me on Instagram, you probably saw a piece of me losing my mind as I shared this story on Instagram. And then I proceeded to ask people to also share it, which I saw that a bunch of you did. Thank you so much for doing that. But the question really remained for me, which was what exactly is happening here and why is it not being covered? And so uh, that really more or less preceded how I knew that this would be the first episode of season four here. I needed to understand how a story this giant could be swept under the rug to the point where I could barely find any coverage on it. And any of the coverage that I did find from this year literally was just focusing on the fact that a settlement had been reached. There was no talk about why a settlement was reached or what exactly these, like where these claims came from, how extensive they were, you know, like why exactly this went on for so long. Like, like none of that existed in any of the articles that I read. And even going back, I came to find out this story has been around for a long time. 
But even going back a couple of years, outlets like NPR and the New York Times, they covered it technically, but it was only about like a page or so worth of coverage with barely any details. And so the thought kind of occurred to me that this is absolutely ridiculous. Nothing this significant should be getting undercovered to this extent, not in this age, not in the age of ultimate media exposure where we have a 24 hour news cycle. And it, it just made absolutely no sense to me, but for the coverage I'm gonna to bring to you today, I wanna to give you the sources that I received this coverage from. We got information here from NBC, the C, uh, CBC News, ABC News, the Associated Press, and then there were great pieces done by Time Magazine and The Intercept. Uh, those last two particularly did great work on this subject. I can't highlight them enough because they did the work that I felt like everyone should have done. But we'll, we'll get to them in a little bit here. The first thing that I want you all to know is that we're going to cover exactly what happened, how long it happened, and what's happening now. So 85,000 people, let me say that again, 85,000 people have come forward claiming that they have been sexually abused by members of the Boy Scouts of America. 85,000, at least. Those are the people who have come forward. Of that 85,000, only apparently 60,000 or so uh, filed lawsuits against the Boy Scouts of America, which again, was the only piece of coverage that I could find, was just the lawsuit, that's all that was being covered. So with a story of this magnitude, you know, the question that I really wanted to know was, you know, what exactly is going on here? Because just for comparison's sake, when you heard about the Catholic Church and all of the accusations that came against them, there was approximately 10,000 accusations against the Catholic Church. 10,000 compared now to over 85,000. So the, th the question that I really had to ask myself is, okay, like, like how did this happen? And, and, and where, do we, where do we start talking about this? Because the disgusting thing to me is that not only did this happen, but even today, the Boy Scouts of America still have over 1.1 million children who are enrolled in, within that organization as of 2020. And so in an era of cancel culture, you, you can't, I can't wrap my head around how that's even still a possibility. But let's talk about exactly what happened on their watch. You know, the, the first thing that I want you to know is that the, that the, the allegations that come against the Boy Scouts of America are not really isolated in any way, shape, or form. In fact, these allegations span decades. In fact, these allegations go all the way back to 1944. They range from 1944 to the most recent one that I saw was in 2018. And during that time, there were 7,800 alleged abusers that we know of, that we know of. And those 7,800 that we know of abused at least 85,000 children. Again, that we know of. People who actually came forward because of course not everyone's going to come forward. We know that the nature of that when it comes to assaults like this. Not everyone's comfortable 
and explaining what's happened to them. It's not exactly something that you want to relive, some of the worst moments of your life. And, you know, the, the, the thing about it is, is that, you know, when we talk about this, I don't want to go into too many stories because at first I wasn't even sure if I wanted to cover any of the particular just like accounts of what some of these people went through. It, I know that it can be triggering for some people and it's just frankly also not things that people want to hear, but I felt like these people had the bravery to come forward and speak about what happened to them and talk about their personal accounts. And so I also feel like it's important to honor these people and to let everyone know what they experienced so that we in some way can get a better understanding of what exactly happened to so many people in this country. And so with that being said, I, I just want to kind of point out that a lot of these claims did come in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, but again, they were widespread from the 40s up until more, the most recently. But let's talk about some of these victims' accounts. So first of all, there were two brothers uh, back in the 1960s from the Seattle area, and they detailed being abused by a scoutmaster. They said that the scoutmaster lived down the street from them, was friends with their family, and would routinely have uh, him and his brother over to his house into his, you know, in his backyard where the scoutmaster would pitch a tent. And so the parents thought that they were just doing normal Boy Scout related activities. But instead, what was happening was the young boy and his brother were routinely being abused. And apparently the one, um, one victim accounted the fact that this started for him when he was six years old and that it went on for nearly a decade. And unfortunately, you know, stories like this, as I was going through this research were, were very common and not just common, but seem to be happening in all different parts of the country not just over in Seattle, Washington, but also in Massachusetts. A 60-year-old Massachusetts man was, um, he was interviewed by Time Magazine and asked to remain anonymous because even still to this day, he couldn't actually talk, like open, he didn't want people to know what had happened to them all these years later. But he accounted the fact that he and several boys in his troop were assaulted and raped over a dozen times in the woods by scoutmasters while they were teenagers. And still to this day, he cringes if someone he doesn't know gets too close to him. And that is, you know, one of the things that I, you know, want to touch on before we get too much further into this discussion is that not only did these atrocious things happen, but people have had to deal with this trauma for the rest of their lives. I mean, when you experience trauma like this as a child, it sticks with you through to adulthood. I mean, trauma experience, especially by children at that small of an age, not only can it affect you into your adulthood, but it can actually alter the shape of your brain and your brain's chemistry as you're, as you're growing as a, as a young child. And I'm gonna bring on a clip of a, of a child doctor who explains exactly how trauma like this affects our brains at that young of an age. Here's the clip. 
In the short term, as a pediatrician, we may see regressed developmental milestones. So a child who was once potty trained may now start wetting the bed. And they may become more regressed in their social interactions or they may outwardly express aggression towards other people. And in the long term, we can start to see the systemic response of the body to those stress hormones. So that's where you start to see heart disease or obesity or depression or anxiety. Kids who are experiencing toxic stress younger are higher risk of suicidality. Uh, so there's real lifelong consequences. And the interesting thing is that the earlier we intervene, the better chance we have at impacting their life trajectory. And so not only do children have to deal with those kinds of effects going later with them into life, but also there's the role that plays in another fashion, something that probably doesn't want to be acknowledged or discussed, but is very true, which is another study that's done by the National Library of Medicine concluded that their data supported that young boys who are victims of sexual abuse are significantly more likely to become victimizers themselves, calling it the victim to vic victim to victimizer cycle which is obviously something that could be prevented had these people not ever been abused in the first place. And this abuse like, took so many different forms over the vast many of accounts that were presented over the years. You know, some victims accounted being assaulted hundreds of times, hundreds of times, and that the scoutmasters would get them drunk and then assault them. And apparently, this was very commonplace for not just this particular victim, but for so many victims across the country. Here's a clip talking about that. According to the LA Times analysis, the alleged abuse occurred all throughout the country and followed a now familiar pattern. The abusive scout leaders would often groom the kids, buy them alcohol, show them porn, and then the abuse would start. The newspaper said that in many cases, the Boy Scouts did not report the alleged abuser to authorities, the alleged victims suffering in secret. And obviously the next question that comes to your mind is, well, did the Boy Scouts know what was happening? Like, were all of these children being abused without there being any kind of reporting being done? Were the Boy Scouts largely unaware of what was going on? Like how much did they know of this happening during this time frame where all of these, where all of these assaults were taking place? And so I, I wanna read to you another testimony from a man named Edward Pitson who spoke with Time Magazine about some of the encounters that he experienced. It says 58 years ago, a scoutmaster who had taught him skills like how to use a compass and how to light a campfire said he was going to teach Pitson about sex. The scoutmaster invited Pitson, who was 12 at the time, to his house and asked him to lie on his bed. The man assured the boy that he had seen other Boy Scouts naked. Quote, this is the normal way to learn about sex, unquote. And then he went on to say, but don't tell your parents what I'm doing. They wouldn't think you're mature enough to... They wouldn't think that you're mature enough. They wouldn't understand. And then the man proceeded to tell him dirty stories and then tried to pull down his pants. Afterwards, 
Pittenson remembers pulling up his pants after a few minutes and walking out of the room to which his scoutmaster called after him saying, calling him a baby and trying to make him feel guilty for leaving. But Pittson recalled just wanting to go home. Later on, Pittson ended up did telling his parents what happened and they went to a bishop at their local church because that church had sponsored that same Boy Scout troop. And the scoutmaster was quietly removed, but to Pittson's knowledge, there was never a police report filed. And apparently this isn't the only kind of story like this, of course, because you know, with this many cases of abuse happening over the years, you would think other people would have tried to report this, report their abuses, to report being just victimized by all of these people. And I'm gonna to present to you now another case of a man in Idaho who talks not only about his abuse, but also his attempts to report said abuse after many instances of being abused by the same person. Here's the clip. And I just, you know, I didn't expect being scared to death that the guy next to you isn't going to sleep. And you don't know why he's not going to sleep and his clothes are like coming off. And he's way bigger than you and then he's pressed on, on your body and he starts masturbating your body with his body and starts touching you and doing all these things that you were going to save your whole life for, for your dream. And it's happening by this crazy, crazy, horrible man. I can't think how in the world like a big person could think so selfishly to just I mean, to do this to a child is just beyond, like, beyond any comprehension. I hate that place. Adam is at first, as a young boy is in that situation, horrified and, you know, feeling guilty and did I do something wrong and pretty quickly finds his moral compass. It's an extraordinary moral compass. Adam goes to the camp leadership and says, hey, Brad is molesting kids at camp. Camp leadership brushes him off. And he says, okay, they're gonna take care of it. Don't worry about it. Everything's fine. Just go back to everything. Everything's normal. But nobody went to stop Brad. I came back to him and I said, this is not working. You have to do something. You have to do something. Finally, I asked to talk to his supervisor. So they put me on the phone with this guy I've never met. I'm like, what's his name? And they're like, oh, this is Kim Hansen. So I'm on the phone with Kim Hansen and I'm telling him what's happening. And Kim Hansen's like, oh, that's horrible. That, that's horrible what's happening. But we don't want anybody to know about it. If people know about it, Nobody will come back to scout camp and you'll ruin it for everybody. No one will ever come here anymore. Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. That's what's next thing. He said, you got to promise me you won't tell your parents. You won't tell anyone. We're going to take care of this. We'll be the ones that take care of it. And that's what he told me. And Brad was still sexually abusing kids up here. And I said, this does not work. And I said, I'm calling the police. And I called the police. The day that the police arrested him, he confessed to 24 victims and others he didn't even remember their names. 
that should have been like the end of the story where the good guys came in and fixed it. But that, unfortunately, was just the beginning. And so the short answer to this question that I had previously is yes. The Boy Scouts did know exactly what was happening. And they not only knew about it, but they kept files of it to some extent. They called them the P-files, also known as the perversion files. So they kept files of everyone who had been documented about allegedly molesting or abusing or raping young boys, but they never ever reported these things to the police. Not once, not ever. And so they allowed these predators to walk free. Yes, some of these people were fired from the Boy Scouts, but they didn't go to jail. The Boy Scouts were more concerned with protecting their image, protecting their brand, their company, than actually going after these predators and making sure that they could not do this to anyone else again. And this went on for decades. It wasn't until 2010 where Carrie Lewis, a person who was victimized in the 1980s, successfully sued the Boy Scouts of America. And during the trial, he was able to tell that his abuser, Timothy or Timmer Dykes, not only abused him, but had abused 17 other boys back in the 1980s. But the worst part about all of this is that Timmer Dykes actually not only was he abusing all of these boys back in the 1980s, but the Boy Scouts knew about this abuse back in the 1980s. So they had knowledge of these abuses going all the way back to 1983 and again, never did anything. Thankfully, once Carrie Lewis came forward in 2010, Timmer Dykes was then sent to prison and has been there ever since, thankfully. And also on top of that, it was during this time that a judge was able to order the Boy Scouts of America to publish said perversion files so that the public could see the name of all of the people who were on this list. And that is when the floodgates really started opening because then was the first time that these stories were finally really coming out to the public. That's when the Los Angeles Times got a hold of this and they made that list public so that people could see it and they referred to it as the Boy Scout files. That's when lawsuits first started, like really started to come down the pipe a little bit. And the, the problem is, is that even though some of the traction was starting to gain there, people were starting to understand what was been happening in the Boy Scouts for all along, is that a lot of the abusers who had molested so many children over the years weren't even on these P files. In fact, some of the lawyers for some victims in this particular case said that 90% of the names of their clients' abusers were not even on these P files. And that's because, of course, not everyone who was abused actually reported this to the Boy Scouts themselves. And I'm sure there were some cases where the Boy Scouts just didn't even file any of these reports in their so-called P files. And so while not every name of an abuser is in these P files, it's still a good thing that these P files do exist. Because uncovered in these perversion files, we were able to see that the Boy Scouts of America were, yes, documenting some of these abuses, 
But again, not sending people to jail, but rather just kicking them out of their organization. And at a rate of which they were actually letting go of one person every two days for nearly a hundred years. That is how many people were cycling out of the Boy Scouts because of allegations of sexual assaults and rape. Again, people who did not face jail time. It is absolutely insane to me that corruption on that level could go on for that long and that nothing was being done about it. Nothing was being done about it. It is absolutely incredible to me. And it wasn't just happening during those times. Again, like I was saying, this is pervaded up until just recently. In fact, one 17 year old from Michigan said that back in 2009, when he was seven years old, he said that you know, he was being molested even then. And that he's only coming forward now because of the success of the Me Too movement. And that he figured that he would share his story now so that it would be helpful for anyone who is still going through this. And that is something that I, I just want to talk about here for a second because so many people are coming forward now because they finally feel as though that they finally have the ability to do so. There are so many of these people who just kept this abuse to themselves for so many years. When, when Time Magazine was going around and interviewing Pitson and, and the man from Massachusetts who chose to remain anonymous and various other people, there quite a few of these scouts ended up saying that they waited decades to come forward, but they were just now feeling inspired because of they saw people who were accusing the church of coming forward and people in, in the entertainment industry, like the people who accused Harvey Weinstein and Kevin Spacey, and what was happening in sports with Larry Nasser and all of his abusers, all of them coming forward. So now these people who had been abused by the Boy Scouts were finally feeling like, hey, maybe I too can come forward and talk about what happened. And thankfully, since these people have come forward, now several states have extended their statute of limitations on sex abuse cases, which has now opened the door to more legal claims. So that in and of itself is definitely a good thing. But the question that really comes is, have the Boy Scouts actually changed at all? Have they changed anything about their operating procedures? They claim that they have. They've come out recently and said that they've now instituted criminal background checks because, you know, that's just something that you do 50 years later after abuse claims start, not when they immediately start happening decades ago. But now that they've been caught, of course, yes, that, that totally makes sense now. But not only have they started implementing criminal background checks, now they've also added a 24-hour hotline, which is called the Scouts First Helpline, which allows people to report misconduct. And so in 2018, a Maryland mother tried to use said helpline. Apparently, her 14-year-old son was sexually abused in the year 2018. She called this helpline, but was informed that they were not going to refile a report, so that if she wanted a report filed, she had to call the police. So the mother then tried contacting a camp director to explain the abuse, to which the director said, boys will be boys. So that was just happening just three years ago after 
the case that came out in 2010 after thousands upon thousands of people are coming forward, even now there are still children being sexually assaulted within the Boy Scouts and they're still not taking it seriously. It is absolutely criminal to me. But now that we've talked about all of these things, now let's talk about the lawsuits because it is absolutely incredible to me that again, the lawsuits are all that's being talked about in the mainstream media for those who, people who actually are even covering this. And this is all at the same time, while the Boy Scouts are hiring lobbyists to push against certain laws that would allow these sexual assault claims to continue to come forward, you know, because they are afraid of criminal cases coming against their organization, and they should be. They should absolutely be afraid of that. But instead of potentially facing all these things, now the Boy Scouts of America have filed for bankruptcy. So they have filed for bankruptcy as of February of 2020, of last year. And as of a few weeks ago, have now reached a settlement where they are now paying out nearly 60,000 people who have come forward. And that is basically where this story stands right now. The Boy Scouts of America are using a tactic of bankruptcy to essentially getting to cap the amount of claims that they're going to pay and so that they can avoid being essentially financially ruined and cut their losses basically where they are right now. And this comes after insurance companies back in 2018 refused to pay these claims that they were receiving hundreds and hundreds of because the insurance companies argued in court that the Boy Scouts of America could have reasonably, reasonably prevented this abuse. And of course they could have. But the question I have not for the Boy Scouts of America, the question I have is for the rest of us. Like, what exactly are we gonna do with this story now? Because this is, this is unconscionable. It's unconscionable that this story has been swept under the rug. It's unconscionable that the Boy Scouts of America still exist, that they're able to still have children enrolled within their ranks, that they believe that just paying people off is going to be an adequate way of dealing with the thousands of people who've had their lives permanently altered by this. People who might've committed suicide, people who are experiencing depression, people who, are, who have forever been just scarred by this. It is insane to me that basically they're being paid off to the tune of maybe $10,000 per person is about what these claimants are going to receive. And that's just the people who have come forward. Again, that's not even accounting for everyone who has seen this. Where is their justice? I mean, like, where, where is the justice in all of this? I mean, where are politicians with this? Why are they not coming forward? The Boy Scouts of America are a federally chartered nonprofit who have to report to Congress annually. For years, they did not report any of these abuses going on. Why is there no criminal punishment for this? I, I truly don't understand it. And for the media, I, I honestly say this is a black mark on all of them because 
there is no categorical good reason why we as a society do not know more about this subject, do not know more about this story. Rightly so, when allegations came out about Kevin Spacey, we heard a bunch of testimony and there was a bunch of reporting on it. The same thing happened when Larry Nasser was found out to be assaulting people at Michigan State, when Harvey Weinstein, when we found out about all of the, the gross abuses that he was doing to women in Hollywood, when we heard about Jeffrey Epstein last year and all the people that he trafficked to and from his island over the years, we hear about Bill Cosby and all the things that he did in the 1980s and the 90s and the 2000s, and even with the Catholic Church. Like, whenever these things are documented, we all know exactly what happens, and there is a plethora of reporting. There has been barely anything scratching the surface on this story. It is absolutely unbelievable. And so I ask all of you who are listening to this now to please go out and share this information. I will be linking below in the episode description the Time article that I was really impressed by, as well as a documentary that was done by The Intercept uh, that just incredibly done. It was about 30 minutes long. It's on YouTube. It's called The Church and the Fourth Estates. And I highly recommend their take on what exactly happened to people uh, in the boy, well, what's, what happened to some of these victims. And so with all that being said, please everyone do your own research on this story. As I always say, like, don't let me be your last line of research for any particular topic. Please go out and check out this story and research what happened to some of these victims and please share this information with people. Thank you so much. With all that being said, now we're gonna transition to our guest segment for this episode. But before we do that, we have a few words from our sponsor, Bathing Beauties Beads. So please make sure that you check out that, that sponsorship ad that'll be coming right after this. And I'll see you with my guest segment here in a few minutes. Hey, Indie Thought listeners. Has this past year helped you rediscover your creative and crafty side? Well, then you're going to love our sponsor for today's episode. Bathing Beauties Beads is a full-service bead shop in the heart of downtown Missoula. Whether it's seed beads, semi-precious stones, vintage beads, or just materials to make a project, they have something for every person and every price range. Not from Missoula? Don't worry. They have an extensive online store and they will ship directly to you. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, they'll welcome you and help you make your next project a reality. You can find them online at Bathing Beauties Beads on Instagram and Facebook or at bathingbeautiesbeads.com. And don't forget to use offer code INDEPENDENTTHOUGHT at checkout to save 15% on your order. Betty's Divine is a locally owned boutique on the magnificent hip strip in downtown Missoula, Montana that has been a fixture in the Mountain West since 2005. We have a fondness for vintage inspired clothing, shoes and accessories for humans, as well as the real deal found in our vintage department, Divine Trash. Betty's Divine presents a snapshot of Northwest styles with an emphasis on street, skate, surf and rock and roll culture, as well as Americana classics. 
Alongside a radical selection of clothing, Betty's Divine offers a damn fine array of shoes, jewelry, records, and accessories to satisfy any taste, whatever your age or vibe. You can count on us to prioritize financial, social, and environmental responsibility without sacrificing the look. Visitors enjoy a lovely atmosphere, dreamy tunes, and the best customer service in the West. And you can shop us online at bettysdivine.com. Welcome back from the break, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Independent Thought. I am joined here today by my guest, Destiny Vale. Destiny, thank you for joining the podcast today. How are you doing? Um, I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on. Um, yeah, absolutely. So a few months back, uh, I was speaking with Vlad you know, on an on a episode that I did back in January, and he mentioned to me that you know, you and I would probably have a pretty decent conversation about some of the things that you've done around here in Montana. So I wanted to bring you on to talk about some of those things today. But, you know, before we kind of get into all of that, the first thing I kind of wanted to ask you about is kind of a more or less a, a personal question here. You started out at the University of Montana at the Indigenous uh, Filmmakers Club. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. Um, yeah, well, I didn't start the club. It was there for a few years before I got there. Uh, but I, yeah, I joined it just as a member while I was going to school at the university. And then a couple years later, I became the president. And it was just sort of, uh, the purpose of the club was to just, I guess, I don't clarify might not be the right <laughs> word, but just to create more visibility for Indigenous filmmakers and also to sort of counteract this sort of stereotypical vision that gets thrown out there in a lot of media today. Yeah. Yeah. So stereotypes is definitely something that's unique to a lot of different minorities uh, here yeah. in America, but all over the place. And what exactly is it that you see in film, in film, uh, especially as far as representation is concerned that you think needs to change as far as how it, we currently portray indigenous people? Uh, well, the biggest thing would be, and I don't know if this is cliche to say at this point, but uh, the biggest thing would be like the monolith idea yeah. that, all, that all native people are the same, that we all come from the, from the same culture, that we're all Plains Indians for, one thing, I mean, I do come from a Plains tribe, but, you know, there's all sorts of different cultures. There's over over 500 different cultures uh, just in the United States. Right. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's just that idea that everyone's the same. And also, along with that, that we're all the same, but also that we live in, like, 1850 or something somewhere around there you know that people people yeah. have this idea of like oh that was that was when the indians lived and apparently we just didn't exist after that yeah right and i think you and i were talking about how some films or some like media more or less like doesn't really portray it in a more accurate sense or that it was obvious that they didn't really receive any input from people who are indigenous like we were talking about the difference between 
shows like Kimmy Schmidt versus Rutherford Falls. Um, what exactly do you see from certain shows do you think that just feels a little just off? Uh, yeah, I guess talking about Kimmy Schmidt, first of all, well, actually, I was thinking about this last night because you and I had an earlier conversation right. about this. And uh, last night I was rewatching The Good Place and I had forgotten there was an episode where they're in Australia, but they have this American themed uh, restaurant. Yeah. And in the background, you see this wooden Indian statue, uh, just like dressed up in a silly way. And so I guess it's not just something like Kimmy Schmidt, uh, which I'll get to in a second. Sorry for the <laughs> segue. But I just wanted to say, I so far have failed to watch a TV show that doesn't mention natives in a stereotypical way somewhere along the line to some degree uh with Kimmy Schmidt though and I I love this show I think it's funny but when they brought in this storyline about Jacqueline being uh Lakota I think is her background it's supposed yeah. to be her background uh and she's supposed to have moved away from there you know it's for this big city life and they bring in her parents, but her parents are portrayed as sort of, uh, it's very flat. It just falls very flat because there's no real relatability in them. Yeah. For that one, it was kind of different because I think it wasn't so much about the stereotypes. I think they were purposely trying to push back against stereotypes, but they went a little too far and it became where they weren't human really they were just sort of these oh caricatures people yeah yeah exactly like native people can't do any wrong like there's nothing you know there's just uh nothing to their character whereas like the whole show is about these flawed people and you end up loving them despite that you know right. but there but the same depth wasn't brought to these native characters. Um, so yeah, that one, again, it wasn't so much about the stereotypes, uh, but it is a good illustration of how native perspective could have come in and helped that by adding some actual humor to the, uh, you know, some actual like humanity and humor to their characters. Right, and I think when we had spoke about this previously, I think one of the things that you had spoken about was when we're seeing representation in the form of indigenous people being portrayed in media, it's often in a very historical sense, like how they were portrayed, you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 300 yeah. years ago, but not really truly in a modern sense. Uh, is that accurate? Like, like, what do you think, um, what do you think it should look like? Well, I think, uh, and we did, you know, you did bring up Rutherford Falls, which to be honest, uh, haven't been haven't been good about watching that because <laughs> I haven't haven't watched it yet. But what I would say is, even from the trailers, you can tell that there were, and I guess you know the news about it as well. But you can tell that there were actual indigenous people informing the writing of this because the jokes are not about they're not at like the expense of the indigenous characters they're more 
they're more from the perspective. Um, so, oh gosh, yeah. I mean, it's just like the the characters are modern. Um, the I'm so sorry. <laughs> I feel like I just um, yeah. Uh, the characters are modern and the jokes are things that it's sort of like, you know, Native people might joke to themselves about this, but, right. in, you know, like the rest of the world can take it or leave it. Like it doesn't really matter. It's coming from that perspective. Uh, whereas most TV shows where this comes up, uh, honestly, again, Kimmy Schmidt, at least I don't know if I want to give them too much credit for this, but they at least tried to think about the stereotypes maybe, whereas most TV shows, they don't think about the the stereotypes uh, or the modern people. It's just somebody in a headdress or like uh, somebody making a noise, you know, that they think is like an Indian or like people dancing around a fire in this sort of, you know, just the stereotypical way that you see. Uh, right. Or it's just in the background, like that wooden Indian was in the good place. Uh, I've seen things like that. Like if there's a Halloween party in a TV show, there's always, always, always a Native American person, or not even Native American person, but like somebody in like a costume that's supposed to be Native American, but is really just this kitschy, cheap costume. Yeah. Right. And, you know, speaking about perspectives, that's actually one of the things I wanted to particularly ask you about. Now, you said that you grew up on the Blackfeet Reservation, is that correct? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So what are some of the cultural differences that you experienced growing up uh, on the reservation that are, I guess, more or less different than what you experienced in the rest of Montana? Oh gosh. Um, well, I wouldn't say it's just Montana in particular. I've uh, I've been around the country, not really around the world or anything, but just around the United States. And yeah. um, I would say the culture shock that I kind of have been through is really a matter of relationships. And I don't really want to, I think I might've mentioned this, before somewhere else, but I don't really want to say that, oh gosh, like I'm not trying to smack talk people basically or whatever. I'm oh, not trying okay. to, yeah. like. This is a but, safe conversation. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but that being said, I think one of the biggest differences is where relationships uh, play a role. Uh, whereas as I grew up, it was more about relationships between people, whereas in America, I call it America, yeah. uh, it seems to be more about the person and their, and their belongings, their material, uh, their material possessions. Right. And along with that is also this idea of like, productivity and work, 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 work. Um, and that's not to say, you know, in my tribe, I can't speak for all tribes, but in my tribe, at least, it's not to say that people don't work. People do work. Uh, you know, they do labor, they help each other. Uh, all of this 
stuff, but it's not, it's not the same. It's not like you're, like you have to kind of give up your soul and your relationships to other people in order to keep, you know, your job and your financial income. Right. So it sounds like a very community-based, you know, just approach to living versus what we see in a every, you know, day, day-to-day -day kind of situation is where it seems like people are very self-serving, trying to further their career, further their goals. And, you know, that feels like that's the only thing that matters to most people in America, which is not entirely false for a lot of people, you know? So, you know, but speaking about the reservation, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was, you know, as we're sitting here in a cloud of smoke here in Montana, you know, climate change is on everyone's minds. Um, but it feels as though certain areas of this country are being hit harder than others. I think, you know, I had seen recently the New York Times did a piece about how uh, reservations are being dramatically impacted by climate change. Have you seen some of that effects, like, you know, up on the Blackfeet Reservation? Uh, yeah, I have. And for one thing, we border Glacier National Park. So Glacier Park has been used for the past two decades as sort of a look. You can see climate change here first because of the glaciers, unfortunately, uh, right. many of which don't exist anymore. Uh, or just going to the park. For example, I mean, this isn't technically the reservation, but it's basically Blackfeet land. Uh, that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> right. But yeah, it's basically Blackfeet land, but going up to the park, uh, it just looks completely different than it did when I was a kid and you would go into the mountains and there would be huge snow fields, uh, not just glaciers, but snow fields, which stay there a long time. And those are, those are completely gone. It just doesn't look the same. But one of the more devastating things, I think, and uh, I'm not like a wildlife biologist or any anything. This isn't like my expertise, I guess, um, as far as scientific research or anything. But one thing I have noticed in which, you know, a lot of people on the reservation have noticed is the berries are changing. Uh, and that's, that's one of the first things that I personally recognized and I've heard a few other people, not a few other people, but I've heard other people uh, recognize just that the berries are either there's a lot of years where they just don't fully ripen. Uh, for example, there's a Sabbath berry, which I think grows in other places in the U.S. might also be called a June berry. Not entirely okay. sure, but it's really important to Blackfeet culture and it, it's uh, really important to the bears up there. They get a lot of their calories from these berries and, you know, usually they're about, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know why I'm trying to do it uh, visually, but. Some people will see the video. Not oh, by, okay. Not that's most, good to know. but some. <laughs> good to know, but maybe they're about the size of like the tip of your finger. Yeah. Uh, usually a good size one, but uh, there have been a lot of years in the last decade or so where they don't get any more than the size of like maybe a, a peppercorn, like a black peppercorn, and so that oh, wow. is just not a viable berry, you know, you just can't do anything uh, with that. Also, yeah. uh, just 
for forever, I guess. I, I don't exactly know how long, but forever, at least when I was a kid growing up on the reservation, the snow that would come down in the winter, you would just get feet and feet of snow. And that was just it. Every year, you just get like several, you know, right. like many feet of snow. Uh, but there's been at least twice in the last decade where literally no snow fell all winter. And in those two winters, there was just this unprecedented winter fire season where like five grass fires broke out around the around the reservation in one day. You know, it's just, it just um, and there's other things going on. If uh, if anybody was interested, I don't know how interested people are, but uh, if anybody's interested in looking into those more technical details, the Blackfeet tribe has put together a climate uh, climate change um, climate change adjustment plan, I believe is what it's called. Uh, there's also uh, one from the Salish Kootenai tribe. I know that they did that a few years ago as well. And so those are just great places to look and see like, oh, this isn't just, I mean, I think we're getting to the point where more and more people are realizing, uh, you know, outside of indigenous communities, more people are realizing that, you know, climate change is here, it's happening now, uh, sort of, you know, we're looking back at it. Uh, right. But if you really want more evidence of that, you can go check out these, these uh, plans that have been written up. Yeah, and for those who are interested, I will have a link to that in the description of this episode. So just go ahead and click on the description of this episode, especially if you're an Apple user or a Spotify user, and you will be able to go directly to that link but kind of continuing this conversation about climate change, one of the things that you were directly involved in was um, there was an oil spill from the story you told me on the Blackfeet Reservation back in 2016. And you told me that the company that was involved actually had to plead guilty because of a video that you took? Oh yeah. Um, Tell actually, me about well, this story. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, the... The oil spill was actually quite a while ago now. Um, well, this particular oil spill, uh, there have, of course, been several since then uh, that haven't gotten, unfortunately, quite as much publicity. Uh, the original one was back in 2011. Um, yeah. Well, when I say original, obviously there's oil spills if you have oil drilling. Right. Uh, but this one that I covered, uh, was uh it was a company company called fx oil drilling and they were working on the uh east side of the reservation there was this older um there was some new fracking going on around that time that initially got me to research what's happening with the oil extraction on the reservation but this company was like an older they had been there for a while uh, and so what happened is apparently, and it gets a little lost what exactly happened, but apparently there was somebody uh, kayaking or something along the river and they noticed the oil in the water. And so they called uh, the tribe and the company, what happened is about a week before that, the company had 
gone out, they had somehow were just doing maintenance or had known there was a leak uh, through monitors and went out and checked this spot and dug it out. You could see where they had dug out like about this 10 foot deep hole. Um, and you could see that it was there, but then um, they left there and then they just, they just didn't, they didn't stop the leak. They didn't do anything to clean they it up at that point. And they, yeah, they just left it there and they didn't report it to anybody. They didn't tell the tribal uh, environmental office uh, anything. They didn't, they didn't bother to alert anybody. They were just kind of letting it go. So their excuse was that they had left and then it was like raining and so they couldn't get back out there, which I mean, I, I mean, personally, I'm like, no, that, you know, it was literally on the edge of the road. It's like you could, it was a dirt road, but you know, it's like, yeah. you, could, you could get there. Uh, but even if they couldn't get out there because of the rain, they could have told somebody hey, this is a big problem. This is happening. It's leaking out there. We're going to need to be prepared when we get out there. But no, right. they didn't do that. They just let it go until this person in the river, uh, about a mile and a half away from the, from the original leak, uh, right. where the river was. Uh, so they, um, they alerted the, the tribal environmental office. And then, then the cleanup kind of started happening. But eventually it took a while um my friend and i did put up a video explaining this whole situation i don't know if you've seen it or anything but um it's kind of old now it's really low resolution for what we have these days <laughs> but you know whatever it's out there but what happened is the environmental office saw it and the um i think they showed it to the federal the fbi maybe. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how, but I just got a call one day from FBI uh, officer asking to do an interview and, uh, and I did. And then from there, it took, it took a little while. It was probably even a couple of years before they went to court and finally got a guilty plea out of the, um, out of the oil company. But I still think of that as like a really proud moment because even though I, I wasn't directly involved with the trial, it just kind of sparked the trial. Um, right. Even though I wasn't directly involved, I still feel kind of proud because working with these people and just learning about oil companies in general, they don't plead guilty ever. And so to get yeah. that out of them was pretty a pretty big deal. It is a pretty big deal. You know, that's one of the reoccurring themes that I try to talk about is the fact that, you know, I think a lot of us feel as though we don't have any power to impact some of these people who are kind of openly taking advantage of, I mean, so many different sectors of our country. And so yeah. every time that we decide to kind of like just stay involved, you know, like eventually things like that will eventually happen more or less. And so I'm really happy that you took that video. I'm happy that they pleaded guilty. But as you mentioned in the top, unfortunately, there does seem to be still more drilling that's been going on in these reservations. It seems that there's more spills that have happened since then. 
I saw that the Biden administration has just issued more permits for drilling on reservations across Montana, Utah, New Mexico, just over the last few months. So this is an issue that is probably going to keep popping up as drilling continues to go on. But, you know, with all that being said, Destiny, I want to thank you for coming on today and talking about these issues with me. Uh, you know, before we, we get off today, is there any, is there anything like parting words that you want to give to people as far as these issues are concerned? Um, I guess, uh, well, parting words is such a, <laughs> such a lot of pressure there, but I think what I would uh, like to say, just like you did, is um, that you can, you don't have to take huge steps. You can just do something in your everyday life. You can look into, uh, I mean, for me, I'm really concerned with like climate change stuff, you know, but if you're also interested in like countering the stereotypes that you might have about people and cultures around you, you can look into, for example, pretty easily, like who, if you're in the United States or in North America, I guess, you know, you might be able to just say like, whose land are you on? Who are, where are you living? And kind of learn about the culture uh, that was there. And um, yeah, I would say just kind of keep an open mind and don't assume that what you've learned about Euro-American perspective is the only or the best perspective. All right. <laughs> I don't know. Is no, that too that, heavy that, to say? <laughs> no, not too heavy at all. I, I think there's nothing wrong with everyone kind of learning a little extra perspective about the world around us. We've for a long time been hearing one narrative about this country. So not exactly entirely wrong to ask people to maybe hear a second or a third or a fourth. Yeah. So totally. thank you, Destiny, for coming on to the show today. Uh, if you are, you know, interested, make sure that you go into the description of this episode and check out those links that I just referred to earlier. And for everyone else, be right back after our final break of the day with my final thoughts. Welcome back from the break, everyone. Thank you for sticking with me through this entire episode of Independent Thought. First, I want to thank my guest, Destiny, for coming on to the episode today. It was really awesome having you on, and I really do appreciate you taking the time to share with us that story. And I hope that for those of you who are interested, you will definitely check out the links below and, you know, check out more of what's going on with those stories that we were referring to within the guest segment. Climate change is an issue that is affecting us all and something needs to be done. It's like something needs to be done. I'm currently breathing in wildfire smoke that is consistently getting into my apartment no matter what I do. Something needs to change. But there'll be more on that on a different day. Uh, if you were interested in seeing the video version of my, of my talk with Destiny, you can join my Patreon to see the video version. Every member of my Patreon will be able to see not only the video of my talk with my guest today, but every guest segment that I have this season will have a video attached to it 
And those videos will be available on my Patreon. So you can sign up below in the link and you'll be able to see all of those videos. And I wanna say thank you to all of my current patrons. I really do appreciate all of you for supporting me and this podcast. And for those who are interested in other semi-videos, my YouTube channel will be getting some more video content in the not too distant future. So check out my YouTube channel as well. The link for that is also below. So check out my YouTube channel. As I'm closing out this episode today, the first thing that I wanna say is that I am incredibly rusty right now. I did not realize it until about halfway through the, uh, the, the first segment when I was talking about the Boy Scouts. I'm stumbling all over my words and I am getting some of my facts mixed up and I was forgetting some of the things that I wanted to say and it, it might take me an episode or two to kind of get back into the uh, just the the natural flow of podcasting. So bear with me a little bit as I'm fumbling around with my words. I do appreciate everybody who you know doesn't you know doesn't think too poorly of me after all of that. But some of the things I want to kind of tell you about what's coming up with season four, I'm really excited about it. I'm excited about the the variety of guests that are coming on the variety of discussions we're planning on having. I am planning on having an additional episode every month uh, from July throughout December. And each additional episode will be a political candidate who is running for office across this country. Uh, I don't wanna say exactly who's coming on just yet because you know, I don't want to jinx it. You never know when people, some people might back out and I haven't recorded all of these just yet, but I have officially recorded one. So coming out on July 29th, uh, William Compton, who is running for the second congressional district in the state of Kentucky. I have already recorded that episode. It will be out on July 29th. And if you were interested in hearing about him and his campaign and his platform, uh, please check that episode out. Again, the video version of that episode will be available on Patreon. And so I'm going to have lots of guests on this season, lots of different topics. And also, I am really excited to get some panel-based episodes going. I have a decent list of topics that I'm brewing right now, and I have a pretty decent list of potential panelists to come on. So I'm definitely excited for when those episodes eventually come through. But the final thing that I want to say before we check out today is, well, there's actually two things. Uh, if you haven't already, uh, subscribe to the podcast, please, because just why not at this point? But also, I know that right now it's summertime. It's July. People don't really want to think about politics. We're kind of like on hopefully the other half of a pandemic, but with the Delta variant, it's kind of surging. That's that's a little bit up in the air right now. And people are out having fun. They're going to concerts. They're going on trips. They're doing a bunch of things that have nothing to do with politics. And most people are kind of checking out of the news cycle right now. And I get it. I absolutely get it. I just checked out for the last two months. That's why I took my break. I checked out. I completely get it. And taking a break is necessary. It's necessary for your mental health. It's necessary just for, for synergy all around. However, I will also ask that you don't take too long of a break. 
because there are so many issues in our country that still need to be addressed and they get addressed through all of us giving them the attention that they deserve. We're only a few months removed from the 2020 election, which rightly so during that campaign cycle, candidates, not just in the general election, but in the primary, talked about all of the different challenges that our country has faced that is that we are facing and that we have been facing and the pandemic has done nothing but exacerbate all of these different issues that we were facing as a country as a society and i just do not believe that the time is now to be not paying attention to these things i mean currently if some of you have been following me on instagram you know that i am continuously saying that Joe Biden has not proposed any climate legislation up until now. I'm gonna keep talking about that because the last time I checked during the campaign cycle, every single member who was running as a Democrat in the primary did nothing but talk about how climate change was an existential threat. I remember them all doing town halls with the Sunrise Movement and now there's no climate legislation being proposed, even though the Democrats have control of the White House, the Senate, and the House of Representatives. How does that make any sense when this was such an existential threat? In fact, the only thing that has been proposed is that there should be tax credits for electric vehicles, which is basically just a giant giveaway for Elon Musk, one of the richest people in the world. That's insanity. So we as a society need to continue to put pressure on these people because if we do not, they will get complacent and they will not get things done. So thank you all for checking out this episode. Thank you all for staying engaged in politics. And please, let's all keep uh, a, a sense of vigilance throughout these next couple of years. Because if we do not, I have a sneaking suspicion that we're gonna be having the same conversations in a couple of years that we were having a couple of years ago. And that's just really not how progress is supposed to work. Thank you for tuning in. See you the next episode. Mm -hmm.